Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. In this Integrated Cancer Medicine Research in Focus series, I talk to various ICM members about their research and how it is supported by the vision of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. MFICM research uses cutting-edge analytics to maximise the use of diverse high-volume datasets and by capturing cancer heterogeneity in time and space in patients receiving active treatment. Integrated Cancer Medicine aims to transform the way the world treats cancer by affecting patients along their treatment pathway and ultimately accelerate cures. Today I have with me Dr. Daniel Hudson and we are going to talk about the direct clinical trial. Dr. Hudson is Principal Investigator and Honorary Consultant in the Department of Haematology at the University of Cambridge and is Chief Investigator for the direct trial. So Dan, if I can start off by asking you about the disease, if you could give me a description. Sure. So, um... But both my clinical work and my laboratory research focuses on a, a disease called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, um, which we abbreviate to DLBCL. And DLBCL is actually about the commonest hematological malignancy, so the commonest blood cancer. It's a, a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It, uh, it presents as fairly quickly growing swollen lymph nodes or lumps that can be really anywhere in the body and it can mimic other types of cancer. But it's but it is a but wherever it's growing, it's a it's a blood cancer. So it's a cancer of the immune cells that we normally find in the blood called lymphocytes. And they become uh, they become cancerous and they grow in lumps and they they typically spread around the body and grow in sort of multiple lumps in, in lymph nodes and other places around the body. What are the current treatments and the current managements? For the last nearly 20 years, we've been treating this the same way, which is to use a, a combination of drugs. So usually three or four chemotherapy drugs uh, combined into a regimen called CHOP, which we then combine with a, an antibody against a, a protein on the surface of, of lymphoma cells called CD20, and that, that antibody is called rituximab. So it's a regimen called RCHOP, and it was, it was first introduced um, in about 2002 and in fact, since since 2002, we've had about 17 very big studies to try and find a better regimen or a better treatment than RCHOP. And, uh, and these have tested a lot of things that have looked promising in, in early studies or in a laboratory. But we've never found anything as yet that's, that's kicked RCHOP off the um, first line treatment for DLBCL. And that, that is something that I want to ultimately change. So where would you say is the gap in the research at the moment? So, um, so I mean, where, where we are with, with our CHOP in DLBCL at the moment is that actually we do quite well. It, it, um, it cures about 60% of patients. And, in, you know, depending on which side of the glass you, you look at, that, that's a good result. But the, the problem is that that leaves about 40% of patients who either don't respond or who most of them, in fact, then respond, but relapse shortly after finishing their RCHOP. And those patients do particularly badly. So we really need to improve our treatment for that 40% of patients that don't, uh, that are not cured with RCHOP. Um, and, and in fact, most of those patients will die as a result of their DLBCL. So there is a real pressing need to try and find better treatments for that group of patients. And the the, the sort of problem I think 
that ultimately direct is going to start to address is that it's very difficult to improve on our chop for a number of reasons or two really so what one is that when we tend to put patients in trials we we for logistical reasons tend to put in fit healthy patients and they tend to be the ones who do very well with our chop so although although we cure 60 percent of people in the real world with our chop when it comes to trials we're curing 75 or sometimes even more and that makes the bar to do better very high you have to enroll a lot of people in order to be able to to do better so what would be really nice is if we could have a strategy to focus our experimental treatments onto those patients who we know are not going to succeed with our chop so can we identify that relatively small group and focus all of our trials onto that group so that that's the first sort of experimental um, research need is how, how do we prioritize patients who are not going to to um, do well with standard therapies and is that the main and, aim of the direct trial well that's half the aim yeah okay. and so and then the, the, the second problem is that we've discovered in recent years that dlbcl is actually not really one disease it's probably six or seven different diseases at the molecular level and and when it comes to targeted biological agents which are now the sort of the exciting way that we think we're going to be treating blood cancers in the future that target a very very narrow specific pathway employed by a particular cancer what what we know is that dlbcl doesn't just have one of those it has six or seven different subtypes and they all use different pathways so if you take a an exciting new treatment and apply it to a thousand patients with dlbcl it's probably only going to benefit 100, 200 of those patients. But at the moment, we don't know who those that relatively small number is. So to sort of get onto what direct does, it addresses both those two problems. It A, provides a, what we call a genomic or molecular subcategorization for DLBCL patients. So rather than saying this patient has DLBCL, we actually break them down into one of seven different subtypes and say, you're, you're in this subtype, this subtype, or this subtype. But then the second thing it does is it uses a, a technology that I think we'll probably go on to talk about in a minute called circulating tumor DNA or plasma DNA sequencing to try and look over time. So before and then after the first course and after the second course of chemotherapy to see which patients are not responding as well as we would like. And the idea is that, that what we'll ultimately get to is that we'll have an, uh, a strategy for treating patients with DLBCL where we can first of all say what biological subtype they are and secondly pull out the say 30 or 40 percent of patients who are not doing well with standard treatment such that they can then be fed into trials of new promising treatments but they go into that trial knowing already that they're they're at high risk of failing standard treatment so they're at a particular need of experimental treatment but also when it comes to picking which experimental treatment we know which molecular type of dlbcl they are can i just ask you how the trial is funded yeah so the the trial is a, a jointly funded trial half and half between on one side the uh criuk cambridge center uh combined with the mark foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. And then on the other side, the other half of the funding comes from AstraZeneca. The trial actually opened about six weeks ago in Cambridge and we're, we're gonna be recruiting patients from another four sites. And we're, we're about to open in uh, Norwich and Leicester and Peterborough. 
Uh, and then hopefully a little bit further down the line, we'll also be opening in Nottingham and, uh, and in Guy's and Tommy's in London. And how many patients have you got recruited uh, right now at the minute? So at the moment, we're recruiting round about one a week. So we're, we've just recruited our, our fifth patient um, from, from Adderbrooks. But what we're aiming for in total over the course of, of the next two years uh, across all of the sites is to recruit between 150 and 170 patients. How will this change the patient pathway? Do you believe that it will change it significantly? So, so absolutely. So what, at the moment, what we do is we take everybody who's got DLBCL, they all get RCHOP, and we pretty much put them through 18 weeks of chemotherapy before we really know if it's worked or not. Uh, and what I hope is that in the future, what this will mean is that we will be able to, it will be in a position to switch treatment to something more effective much earlier on. So, of course, pa patients lose condition and they, you know, they get weaker and weaker as chemotherapy goes on. And so continuing with a treatment that ultimately is not going to work is, is not great for patients who may be ill, elderly, frail, when they start these treatments and often the, situ the unfortunate situation we get in is that by the time the patient relapses or we declare that RCHOP has not worked, they, they really aren't able to tolerate any further treatment. What we'll hopefully be able to do is to identify very early on in their treatment and say, look, this is someone that, that simply isn't going to succeed with RCHOP. And before, before we've given them the full 18 weeks, we can, we can bail out and switch to something else. So it's really looking at uh, precision cancer medicine specific to a patient's needs and uh, the way that so, so it, it's exactly that. So it's, it's precision medicine. And the, the two things that it's targeted at are it's targeted at the biology and the risk. And both of those are individual to that patient. In the future, how will clinicians process the information and how will they pass it on to the patients? So, well, I mean, this, this is going to be a, a big challenge as these these particularly the molecular assays get more and more complex because um, it, it doesn't pop out of the sequencing machine as a single number. It, you know, it pops out as, yeah. uh, as, as very, very large data sets that, that can be analyzed um, in a very complicated way. And there are, you know, the, the first challenge of course is getting this information back to the clinicians in a meaningful time frame, And that's, that's a sort of secondary aim of the direct trial is to see can we, can we run these tests, process the information and return the results in a time frame that's actually useful to the clinician? Sure. Because, because what we want to avoid is telling a clinician three months after the patient has already relapsed, phoning them up, feeding back the data that, that we think this is a high risk patient. And mm -hmm. so what, what's gonna be a very tight turnaround and what we're trying to do is to be able to process this data and get it back to the clinician Within a, a six week within six weeks of the patient starting their chemotherapy, and and I, I think what we would also like to do is to try and boil it down from a very complicated set of that looks at multiple multiple different genes and each of those within each of those what the mutations are and how they've changed in the in terms of the tumor burden to boil that down into a single score that that, that we feedback that could then be fed back to the patient to say yes you're doing extremely well we're just going to carry on with this treatment which is what we anticipate for probably two-thirds of patients or for the for a third of patients to say actually six weeks in we, we think you are not doing as well as we would have liked and we would now like to to introduce this alternative experimental treatment to try and improve things 
And what sort of mechanisms do you have in place in order to achieve that? Because it's, it's, it's a huge aim, that very fast turnaround. I mean, how will you analyze the data and make it meaningful to the clinician and the patient? So, so all of the molecular assays for this trial are being run in a laboratory called CMDL, which is, which is our cancer molecular diagnostic lab in, in Cambridge, which is part of the, again, the Cambridge Cancer Center. Um, so, I mean, they're, you know, they are very well set up to run, to run these kind of assays. And of course, the, the more, and you know, as we move to the future, the, the more and more this becomes mainstream, the, the, it becomes a, a economy of scale, as it were, that, that if we receive one of these a week, it's very difficult to run one on its own. But if we're receiving 10, 20 a day, then actually then there becomes a pipeline that becomes, at least for the analysis, largely automated. And, you know, we can start to feed through these things and turn them around much quicker. Sure. I guess that leads into my next question, which is, will this new paradigm be accepted into standard of care, do you think? So I think I think the next stage, if, if direct looks as if it's if it's showing promising results and we can do this in a time frame that's compatible with being clinically useful, I think the next stage would be to incorporate this into a large UK phase three trial. And if we could then become, or, you know, or, or if we could then supply this kind of information to patients in the trial, then, then we can start to really tailor experimental treatments in clinical trials to those patients that, that are likely to benefit from it the most. It becomes really exciting because you're having real world impact at the real yeah. time, in real time and space. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, we, we do it for, you know, there, there are other blood cancers where this type of molecular monitoring is done in terms of monitoring patients' response to targeted therapy in, you know, in the leukemias. This is, this is relatively common, commonplace. So it, once it becomes established and once the laboratories become set up with the technology and the skills and the, and the computational analysis pipelines to run this type of thing, it, it, it then becomes, you know, it's not easy, but it becomes perfectly perfectly doable. So can you, can you foresee any barriers to getting to the end point that you want to achieve with this trial? Um, so, I mean, I think it's not, it, it sounds easy that we're going to do a blood test uh, before treatment and a couple of blood tests during treatment and therefore generate an integrated uh, risk score and feed it back to clinicians. But particularly once we start recruiting patients from other hospitals, I, I think, you know, the there's a significant challenge around the logistics of getting the, the right blood tests delivered in a timely manner and getting the, the right other bits of tissue, the biopsy tissue that, that, that we need as well, um, to retrieve them from various pathology labs around the country and have them delivered to us in time to make the DNA, run the sequencing and then run the bioinformatics, integrate all the results and send it back in, in a meaningful time frame. So I think the logistics is one. Um, secondly, I think that the just the, the technology around the ctDNA that we're trying to do is is pretty much at the limit of what is currently technically possible at the moment, and therefore, you know, I think we will be. It, it's it's not straightforward, and it, it will be technically challenging to to really push the sensitivity of this test to the point where it's clinically useful. So I think both the technical side and the logistical side present significant challenges that, that I expect we'll have to overcome over the next couple of years. 
So what, what data streams will you be combining alongside the ctDNA uh, analysis in order to give a bigger picture of the treatment for the, uh, whether the treatment's working for the patient? Yeah, so I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the ctDNA is just one aspect of this trial and uh, what we want to, to feedback is an integrated risk score, and that of course integrates a few different things like age, stage, some blood tests that we, that we already know predict, predict response. We'll also integrate the, the genomic testing that's performed on the tumour at the beginning, and we know that, that by breaking down into the different molecular subtypes, that within those there are some that do particularly well and some that do particularly badly. Uh, and then we also have the what we call the functional imaging, so the, the radiology, and for, for lymphoma that will mostly focus on PET, uh, PET CT, which is a, a way of looking at the metabolic activity of, of tumours. And we know that patients who, who become metabolically inactive in, the, in their tumour very early on in treatment, we know that they do particularly well, and those that, that have residual metabolic activity do, do less well. And then finally, we have the ctDNA performed before and after the first course of treatment. So there are four big groups of data that get integrated into, a, into our final risk score. And how does this fit in with your broader research? So the, the bulk of my research aims to understand the, the kind of genetic uh, pathogenesis of, of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So we're, we're taking the what, what is now a very large list of, of mutations that we find in lymphoma and trying to understand what each of these genetic alterations does in terms of turning a normal human lymphocyte into a malignant uh, lymphoma cell. And, you know, the, the aim of my research really is if we could understand what those differences are and how the genetic alterations drive those differences, then we can start to identify biological pathways or signaling pathways or molecules that could become targets for therapy in lymphoma that would ideally knock out a lymphoma cell, but without damaging a, a normal human cell. Where do you see integrated cancer medicine taking us in the next five to ten years? So I think the really exciting thing at the moment is how, how quickly the pace of learning is accelerating. So, you know, every year we learn more about cancer than we learned in the year before. And a particularly exciting feature is the way that we're, we're starting to see different disciplines of, of cancer research supporting each other. So, you know, in my own field, for instance, the, the genetic sequencing is, is rapidly increasing in its, in its sophistication and, and what we can do technologically, but that's being supported by the concurrent advances in the, in the field of computer science. And, and at the same time, we have the, you know, the, the increasingly sophisticated radiological techniques that again, all, all feed in together to being able to identify the, the sort of biology that drives an individual patient's tumour. And where do you see your research taking you in the next five to 10 years? So I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll, we'll see some real breakthroughs in understanding for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, what, what the biological pathways are that become corrupted to drive each of these molecular subtypes that I've talked about. And by understanding each of those pathways, we can then start to um, start to make predictions about which drugs will be most suitable for which patient. Or if drugs don't exist, we'll at least be able to say the drug we need is one that inhibits this particular molecule so that we can go to a, a, you know, a, a, a drug company and say, 
that no drug exists that inhibits this molecule, but we believe that if it did, this would be a, a, a superior treatment for this particular type of, of malignancy. And I, I think that, that we, will, we, will, we will rapidly get, get closer and closer to that over the next few years. I'd just like to say thank you very much for being part of this podcast today and for telling me about your research and the clinical trial. Thank you. If you want to find out more about the work of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine, please visit our website at www.integratedcancermedicine.org, where you can find details of the ICM vision, all the current research, clinical trials, resources, publications and team information. You can keep up to date with our latest news and events and you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you would like more information about the work of the CRUK Cambridge Centre, please go to www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk or you can connect with us on Twitter using our handle at CRUK Cam Centre. Thanks for listening and do join us again soon.